Hello and welcome to Hello. the to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Basila Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. Thankful that Cena can join me while Blaze Bryant has other commitments. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a report from Mark Dunley about Dr. David Carpenter, founder and director of the University of Albany's Institute for Health and the Environment, being put on administrative assignment because of his work as an expert witness in court cases against Monsanto Company, producers of PCBs. Then our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, brings us uh, part three of his four-part series on the Reverend Arl Sharpton's presentation at a January 28th uh, National Action Forum about the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee. Next, we'll hear about uh, an upcoming seed swap coordinated by the People's Health Sanctuary and College City Growers, two initiatives of the Sanctuary for Independent Media. After that, I talk with uh, Bria talks with retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson in a recorded interview about recent climate and weather. And stay tuned to hear about the climate weird weirding and more. And then we end today's program by hearing about Amor, the annual Valentine's Day concert by Taina Asili and Gaetano Vaccaro at Umana Yana. But first, here are the headlines. Problems with the Norlite incinerator and aggregate plant in Cohoes are once again in the news. On Saturday, residents nearby complained about strong burning odors and a smoky haze coming from the plant. New York's Department of Environmental Conservation investigated and said that solids had accumulated in the venting system when the plant shut down due to the cold snap. For previous coverage on Norlite issues, check out the website. Progressives and public defenders have spoken out about the tweaks that Governor Hochul recently proposed in bail laws, saying that the changes could result in more people being incarcerated unnecessarily while awaiting trial. A review by the Times Union concluded that a conservative estimate would have 10% more cases resulting in bail or incarceration with the proposed changes. The executive director of the nonprofit Shelters of Saratoga when withdrawing a proposal for a 24-hour drop-in center for homeless people, stated that both he and the president of the shelter's board faced numerous threats of physical violence and personal lawsuits from community members concerned about the impact of the proposed center in the neighborhood. And finally, a member of the State Passenger Limousine Safety Task Force is urging Albany District Attorney David Soares to pursue a criminal probe into actions or lack of actions by state agencies that may have contributed to the 2018 deaths of 20 people in a crash of a limo that should have been taken off the road. The member notes that action is needed soon before the five-year statute of limitation expires and ends any option for later action. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute 
your time, talents, or financial support, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-2390. It was recently announced that David Carpenter, founder and longtime director of the University at Albany's Institute for Health and Environment, has been put on administrative leave. To learn more, our correspondent Mark Dunley spoke with Dr. Carpenter. Here's the story. We're joined today by uh, Dr. Uh, David Carpenter, who is founder and director of the University at Albany's Institute for Health and the Environment, quite renowned both in the Capital District and I think really nationally for his um, leadership and willingness to participate as a scientist on many critical environmental issues. But on uh, Monday, he had a hearing about this apparently nine months administrative leave or something that the university had done in response to a complaint by Monsanto. Uh, Dr. Carpenter often testifies in cases involving Monsanto as an expert witness, pretty much usually donates his any expert fees to either the university or to uh, the graduate students who are part of his program. So Dr. Carpenter, uh, what good word did we hear from the SUNY uh, administration or or the faculty supervisors today? Well, I had expected some good words, but I did not hear it. Uh, I was called in today when I thought I was going to be told I hadn't done anything wrong and I can come back and do what I normally do as a faculty member. I was told that this was a counseling session and I had to read all the manuscripts about the requirements for this and that, and that uh, they would set dates when I would have to comply. Clearly, what they are trying to do is stop me from doing expert witness work. They are scared to death of Monsanto. And Monsanto is a big and evil and powerful corporation. Uh, But I am not going to give in to this. This is just nonsense. Now, what what have been some of the cases or issues where you, you know, basically had to confront Monsanto or provide testimony that perhaps, you know, they and their corporate interests didn't want to hear? Well, I've been an expert witness against Monsanto for more than 20 years. Uh, The first cases about 20 years ago were of people that live in Anniston, Alabama, primarily a black community that live around the plant, that never were even employed there, but were uh, bombarded with PCBs coming off the plant, uh, contaminating the soil, contaminating. (laughs) One woman had a pig. It was taken by Monsanto because they knew it was so contaminated. Uh, and the result of that, those cases was uh, that Monsanto had to pay a lot of money to the individuals. And I had a part in devising the payment. And what we did was measure the PCBs in their blood. And in relation to how many PCBs they had, Monsanto had to pay them. Well, fast forward, I'm involved in a number of other cases all against Monsanto. Some of them are people that have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer that's well-documented as resulting from exposure to PCBs. Uh, uh, There is a case at Akwesasne, the Mohawk Reserve in northern New York State, where I've had a research program going for, again, 25 years. The Mohawks are swing Monsanto for contamination of their whole environment, for the diseases that people have developed, especially cancer, uh, reproductive problems, diabetes, 
and neurocognitive problems, all of which are known to be caused by PCBs. And then finally, I've been involved in a series of cases, and this really was the one that broke the camel's back. Uh, this is the Sky Valley School near Seattle, Washington. And the school had PCBs in a lot of construction materials, particularly light ballast, fluorescent light ballast, and caulk used around windows and doors. And over the year, the PCBs in the ballast leaked. The PCBs in the caulk volatilized. Students, teachers, and staff were breathing them in and becoming ill. And the, the illnesses were primarily neurologic. Uh, the first case there, Erickson versus Monsanto, was on behalf of three teachers and was settled with a bill for Monsanto of $269 million. I've been involved in two other cases there, and there are ongoing cases that I was not invited to be involved in because of this fact that the university put me on, quotes, alternate assignment, which means I can't even go to my office. You read in the time, June, they focus a bit on the issue of fees being paid to you as an expert witness. The indication, you know, from, from you was that, you know, the, these fees generally you try to donate it either to the university or, you know, to the graduate students in your program, you know, which sometimes you get a jump to. I know, you know, tax attorney hoops on this. Was So is that an issue that the administration raised, the issue of fees? Or this more just seems, hey, we just don't really like you being an expert against Monsanto and other big companies, you know, that have a lot of political cloud and, you know, throw money around. I think it's more the latter. Uh, they said they had to regulate how I paid my students. Now, last year, the, uh, the year that ended last June, I received more than $200,000 in funds from in my expert witness work. I did not take a penny of that for myself. It was all for staff and students. This year, I continue to support, I just had to account uh, how many I, I support, five students. And uh, clearly, for some reason, the university doesn't want me to do that. Uh, they even suggested that maybe the, the provost's office could pay the students that I'm currently support so they wouldn't, it wouldn't have to come from my money. Well, I asked them, what do you want me to do? Take the money myself? And they all said, oh, no, no, no. So clearly what they want is to stop my expert witness work. Mm -hmm. I consider that my job as a public health professional who has studied for 30 years the adverse health effects of PCB exposure. Mm -hmm. And it is totally unacceptable that the university try to shut me off, both for my expert witness work, but in addition from using the funds that I make there to support students and staff. It's no different than writing an NIH grant for training or a research grant. Uh, I'm not enriching my, myself with any of this. It's totally consistent with my research activities. It's consistent with what I see as my public health responsibility to hold polluters accountable and do what I can to help improve the health of people that are exposed to these nasty chemicals. Now, we only have about two and a half minutes left. I'm going, to, I'm going to end with a large question and you figure out what you can answer in two minutes. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, chatter today on social media about this. Uh, a lot of people compare this to the type of harassment that uh, 
uh, Ward Stone, a wildlife pathologist at DEC, received one big difference here is that uh, you might argue that war is a little bit of a maverick. You ever are, you know, the head of a program and, you know, sort of the one that's supposed to be, you know, sort of overseeing this. So in the last two minutes, you know, where do things go from here? What are the rights to, to challenge this? And, and how can your many, many, many supporters who appreciate all the work you've done for people step up to assist in this? Well, I, th uh, I think that supporters can make themselves heard to the university, uh, to the president, to the vice president for research, who I do report to. Uh, I had a wonderful email today from Joshua Needleman, who's the son of Herbert Needleman, who was the first person in the late 70s that demonstrated that exposure to lead reduced IQ in children. And, and Joshua said, you know, you're following in my father's footsteps. I consider that an honor. And I don't have any intention of stopping uh, to do what I can to hold polluters accountable and help people that are exposed to hazardous chemicals through no fault of their own, caused by a company that I knew that they were dangerous, but never told anybody about it. Is there any internal administrative process? As a director of program, I imagine you may not be a member of a union, student faculty. Well, our next step process? is to go to the Senate. The UUP union wouldn't uh, help me until I was charged with something. The moment it doesn't sound like I'm still charged with anything, they're just putting restrictions on what I can do. And those restrictions are simply not acceptable. If people want to follow this, um, what, what's the best way for them to get information about your program? I think that the, the group of professional employees for environmental responsibility are, is going to be very much involved in this. This is a legal group that uh, helps defend academics like me that get in trouble over uh, activities like this. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of people and we'll all do what we can to provide information. And we well, do appreciate any help anybody can provide. We this are is not going to go fast. Uh, Media Sanctuary is only be following up in the story. Uh, Dr. David Carpenter, um, University of Albany Institute for Health and the Environment. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk uh, magazine. Thanks to Mark for that report, taking us behind the scenes on this story to hear Dr. Carpenter's perspective and get some details about the problems with PCBs. Next, we have the third part of four pieces by roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry. A, uh, this is the third excerpt from Reverend Al Sharpton's uh, presentation or speech to the National Action Network on police brutality and the killing of Tyree Nichols. I know some thought we would not be organizing because they were black cops. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we told you all along that this movement is not anti-white, it's anti-wrong. Yeah. We're not anti-white police brutality, we're anti-police brutality. Yeah. And we're not anti-police because we still the same. We meet here the other week at the summit and I'm working on how we deal with a lot of the criminal element in our community. And we not go back up off of that. Right. I'm fighting the cops that are wrong and the robbers. Right. But you do not have a right 
to criminalize people by killing them. We are in a community where we got to worry about folk in blue jeans and blue uniforms. We want everybody to respect the law. Right, when you're talking about rebel all of a sudden, want to fight crime, I always fought crime. In the 80s, it was us that went painting the crack houses, telling y'all to bust the crack dealers. I didn't just start fighting crime. Well, no, but you've been on police. I've been on police crimes. Choking somebody to death is a crime. Putting your knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes is a crime. And beating somebody to death in Memphis is a crime. I'm a crime fighter. Yeah. Killing in Inglewood, New Jersey is a crime. be alive today. Y'all are selective crime fighters. You only fight crimes that you want to fight. But you don't want to fight police crime. We fight them all. Whether they are those that have done wrong in the community against innocent people or whether it's police crimes that are crimes need to be fought by real crime fighters. And your blackness ain't gonna stop us from fighting. Yeah. These five cops not only disgraced their badge, they disgraced our race. And not only are we going to be with this family on Wednesday to do the funeral, just like I was with families down through the years. I'll be in Memphis for the trial of these cops with that family. I'll be with that family when the cameras are gone. Because we want to show them that just because they were black, you may be my color, but you're not my kind. said the members of the Senate and the White House, we want to reintroduce this legislation. We cannot just keep going from one incident to the next. All of these have to lead to federal law or it's going to keep happening. People said, I thought it was over with George Floyd. It may have been if they passed a George Floyd bill. If they pass a law in the state of New York, the family, Eric Garner, fought. National Action Network was with him, got an Eric Garner law. State law now. His daughter, Emerald's in the back. She thought I didn't see him. It became law. You ain't seen nobody choking nobody in New York lately. 
because there's an error around the law. You need a law that makes these policemen understand they are not above the law. They enforce the law. What, what gives somebody the, the, the mentality that they can just violate somebody like that? I mean, when you watch that tape, the audacity to think that you could just punch somebody around and the, holding them up and one just throwing it, said I threw some haymakers at them. I mean, verbally said this. I'm trying to knock them out. For what? Even if you felt he was doing a traffic, you gonna knock somebody out? But it shows a mentality that we've not put in check. Police are to serve and protect. They are not supremacists over us to do whatever they want to do at the scene of wherever they want to do it. Reason I take this so personal is we fought to get police to get blacks in the police department. We marched to get blacks and browns in the police department. And you got the nerve to get in a department and put on a badge and a gun and treat us as bad as others did? We thought if we got you in, then you would stand up to treat us like you treat others. But you are now imitating the worst in policing, so you gonna pay the same price that others pay. The other thing that is very revealing is this happened January 7th. This beating that led to a killing happened January 7th. He died three days later in the hospital. January 26th, they released the videotape in public. Is that right? So from January 7th, to January 26th. I, I didn't go to school where Harding went, but that's 19 days. <laughs> Explain to me how in 19 days they could put out the videotape, indict the cops, and arrest them in 19 days. But in all these other cases, it took y'all years to come out. So there's a new precedent set now. Because this black woman police chief done messed y'all up now. Because she said, I'm not waiting on nothing. Arrest them, fire them. You now got a new clock on police accountability. We don't want to hear no year investigation. something we can be proud of. She fired him before they were even charged with a crime. She's raised the bar on police accountability and we won't let that bar be lowered again. Oh, 
19 days. The whole world watching the tape. 19 days. They've been arrested, fired. Got to go get your lawyer. Which means it never took you all that time. How many times ever we had to sit up, we're investigating this, we're looking at that. Summer turned to fall. Fall turned to winter, we still looking. No, you've been procrastinating. You've been jiving, you've been trying to work your way out. But now we know it don't take all that time. And we're going to keep that clock from now on. And for every black cop that wants to act like those five, there's a black woman chief telling you we ain't going to have it. Thanks to Willie Terry for those excerpts from the Reverend Al Sharpton, recorded during a recent online forum sponsored by the National Action Network. Willie's two earlier segments can be found on our website, and the final part of this series will be in our next episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey, and you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOG LP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOS LP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOA LP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, joining our volunteer production team, or providing financial support. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now, on to our next story. Usually we have retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson joining us for a live weekly discussion on climate and weather, but with Hugh on vacation in Florida. We have a recorded segment this week. Hugh spoke with my co-host, Bria Barthel. Hey, Hugh. I hear you. You can talk about the weather, but you can't do anything about it. But you must have predicted the cold weather uh, on Thursday because what you did about it was went to Florida. How are things down in Florida? Well, they're a lot warmer than they are up in Albany, although it's a little cool this morning. It's still in the high 50s, but the sun is out. Just a little breeze. Can't complain. Oh, my, if you can tell you're away if you can't complain. We had some <laughs> wicked weather in the last couple of days. Uh, what was going on with the 13 below? Well, what's going on is that we've had a very mild January, one of the mildest on records. Uh, the polar vortex, we've talked about that before, was locked well up in Canada. The cold air was locked up there, too. But cold air is, is think of it as like a dam. The cold air builds up. It gets heavier and heavier. And sometimes even without the jet stream buckling, the cold air can kind of buckle. It can come from below and actually buckle it from below. And you get what we call an Arctic jailbreaker. And that's exactly what we had over the over the weekend. Uh, we had the cold air, which is bottled up so long, it just, just it just came on down and it just aimed right at the cold spot was Maine. Some of the coldest temperatures in all the country, I think even Alaska, even when you compare Alaska, we're in Maine this weekend. It got down to like 25 below. 
And of course, our 13 below was the coldest. We had the exact same thing happen in 2016, another very mild winter, where we had this one epic Arctic jailbreaker come down and give us a 13 below that winter as well. So it does happen, not every time we have a mild winter, but when you have these persistent mild trends, you can you can get that colder building. A couple of years ago, remember, it hit Texas. They got in te- they got colder in Texas than we got here. So it, it, it depends on where it aims, and it aimed right at us this time. And then we went from 13 below to 40-some above, more than 50-degree change in less than 24 hours. Does that happen very often? No, not at all. It's, it's, it's quite impressive. The reason for that was uh, because of the uh, we were in that positive North Atlantic oscillation. We were never in the, the negative part of the phase. So we were not, we were basically in a very progressive pattern where the cold air generally stays locked up, but this, this one got down. And then as soon as it got down, it quickly got whisked out to sea and milder air rapidly replaced it. And that doesn't happen very often, but that the same thing happened in 2016. I looked two days after that, we were in the fifties. So the same thing happened that year too. So Again, Arctic jailbreaker and exception to a very mild winter, and we're returning to our mild programming at least for the next week or so. Yeah. Except that mild programming is actually unusual for this time of year. We're going back to the unusual times. I saw a phrase in the New York Times I hadn't seen before. We've heard about climate change and climate warming, and I love the phrase climate weirding. (laughs) That seems to describe it pretty well. I agree. We had this rapid change in temperature. We're going to see probably more and more of this coming because there's still going to be cold air locked up somewhere in Canada. We're going to probably see more and more of these episodes going on through time. Uh, I already talked about this one, the one in Texas and the one a few years ago. Uh, And then, of course, we could also talk about what happened in California after having years of drought. They had that onslaught of the tropical river coming in with all the rain. And, uh, you know, for a month, they just got deluge and now they're back to being dry again, much drier again. So, you know, yeah, we're going to see a lot of these episodes happening where we have great contrast. And then you'll get some deniers saying, see, I told you it's not warming because it's it's 13 below where this climate change is a hoax. But we we know it's not. (laughs) So speaking of highs and lows. I love having a chance to ask you all my little questions. I've I've noticed on on weather forecast often now that they'll say like high of 30, low of 20, and it's 10 below, for instance, or high of 30, low of 20, and it's 42. So that, that the high and low, the actual temperature is either higher or lower within, than the range they give. My thought is that rather than showing the low for the day, the low might be the low that's expected overnight rather than during the day. Is that mm-hmm. what's going on? Well, again, a couple of things happen there. I work for the Weather Service. Sometimes you, you're trying to update the temperature will rise higher than you think it will or you're going to predict it will. But you, you just didn't get out there in time with the new updated forecast. That happens a lot. If it's off by more than a few degrees, it's negligence. It's just you're not someone's asleep at the wheel. Um, but then you get you get that like what happened on Friday, or uh, you know, get those uh, vacillation. T- like Friday, yeah, we, we had a, our low was in the morning, but then the temperature never really rose during the day. So the high was actually at midnight by far when everyone was asleep, right? So 
that that sometimes throws in a, a, a kink into the whole forecast thing, especially if you look at a graphic that it's a 24 hour thing and it'll say the high of 40 and you're sitting, like you say, at 19 or whatever. Yeah, that that's a, that sometimes happens, too. But it should be updated. It should be should reflect what's going to happen in the future, not the past. So some of that's negligent. Some of it's just the way things. And, and then you can argue people say, well, that one thermometer temperature is not representative of the region. That could be sometimes that's true. But again, you really should have a, a high. If you say a high of 75 and it's 78, you should update that at least go to 78. So again, that's that's just my own preference. But we've all been there where where we had a high and, and the you know we we're forecasting a high and the high was higher or the low was lower because we just didn't get the update in time. We so can't blame not the that. climate change. It's not climate change. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that they're showing the low that's expected overnight that they're projecting farther than during the day. It's that they just are advertising that their uh, forecast was wrong. Yeah, it could be that too. It's funny, I'm retired now, so I can kind of look at our weather forecast and I know how it works and all. And I, 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 I never bother them, but you know, I've seen them happen where we can say that they're off and, and you know that kind of thing. And you know, if I see something that's really, really off, I'll call them. I'll let them know. Like if there's a, if it's pouring rain and we had no rain in the forecast, but if the temperature's off a few degrees, I'm not going to bother them anyway. But that's what goes on there. It's not an exact science, and you know we're human. We make mistakes. Um, you know, look what happened with the, the near crash at the uh, at the JFK a few weeks ago. Uh, that was human error. I mean, thank God no one got hurt. But you know, so the same thing happens in weather. People make mistakes. <laughs> right now, one of the things I love about snow is that after we have snow, it is so quiet because the snow is absorbing the sound, mm-hmm. and yet. Someone asked, why is it, um, why does sound travel faster in cold air that she's heard that people can be a mile apart and because of of freaky whatever, they can hear each other talk? I don't think that's quite true, but that, that, so does cold air affect the sound travel? Yeah, it does a little bit because cold air is denser than warmer air. And actually that because of that sound travels a little faster. So you do get a little di- difference in speed. And the other thing is when you have an inversion, that it, when you have an inversion, the air, when the air gets uh, it's cold in the ground, it gets warmer with height, right where that inversion is, that's where it's like a ducting and that's where the sound waves will, will propagate. So that's the time that you can start, like at, at night sometimes, I can hear the throughway from my house when there's a very light south wind and inversion, the same kind of thing goes on. So yeah, definitely yeah. different air masses uh, change the, uh, the, the, the the sound absolutely hmm, who knew okay yeah. let's go to the forecast are we going to have another 50 degree change say no, no say no say no 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 you're not going to have it we're going to stay pretty consistently mild this week with just a few small disturbances and uh temperatures staying again above normal uh 30s and 40s for highs uh i, I think we'll have a few showers on thursday but for the most part it's going to be pretty quiet now Looking further down the road, there is talk of another what we call stratospheric warming, and that could possibly bring more persistent cold weather back later in the month. It's still not etched in stone, but it's something when people were just when people were thinking, okay, we're done with winter. uh, It's happened several times. It happened in 2013, 18, 17. I don't think we'll get as cold as what we got. We won't see anything like that, but, you know, it might get back to normal or below normal temperatures. (laughs) 
Wait a second. You're saying it'll get colder because the stratosphere is warm? Right, right. Well, it, again, make it real simple. Is it basically produces a block in the atmosphere, which we have not seen most of this winter. We've seen a very progressive jet, which keeps the cold air locked up in Canada. But now the jet will weaken and will allow cold air from the higher latitudes to sink southward and stay here. It won't be a jailbreaker. It'll just be a gradual sip. And that could, you know, that, that's the kind of situation where you, if you want as coastal low pressure and snowstorms, it's more likely to happen. Doesn't mean it will happen, but the chances go up that we will get then nor'easters and maybe some snow, some, some meaningful snow. Okay. Well, at least the, I'm going to take the good part from that is that it won't be quite as cold. Thanks no, a lot, Hugh. Good talking be. with you. Look forward to next week. You got it. Take care. Bye-bye. As you may have guessed, I love having the chance to ask Hugh all my questions about climate and weather. Listeners, if you have anything you want us to ask Hugh about, just call us or drop us an email. And given the recent cold, let's think spring. People's Health Sanctuary and Colored City Growers are hosting a seed swap this Saturday, February 11th. Here's more information. Hi, this is Ellie Irons. I'm Nature Lab's community science educator and lab manager. I also do a lot of work with Collard City Growers, and I'm here with Azare Kiahi, who has been a super important force in the development of Collard City over the past decade. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, almost a decade. Almost. I would say probably more like nine seasons. But. Nice. Okay. So I'm sure many of our listeners know who you are, but maybe for those who don't, you can give us a little intro. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. My name's Azare. I am a Lansingburg resident and mother creative garden nerd. Uh, have been doing work at the sanctuary um, in their gardens, as I said, for nine years, helping tend the soils here and put plants in the ground and just be a, a caring presence on this sanctuary block. Awesome. Thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Um, we're actually sitting here together in the second floor of the Nature Lab building in our very brand new People's Health Sanctuary. Space is designed to host a mutual aid health initiative that will help grow a network of communal health practice here in the capital region. We had our first open house back in December, which was lots of fun. And now we're here prepping for our next open house, which is going to be a seed swap that will take place on Saturday, February 11th. It'll be from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And we'll talk a bit more about what folks can expect at that event shortly. But before that, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about what the function of a seed swap is in general why people might want to save and share seeds on this like local or bioregional level. Yeah, um, well, for me personally, I get really excited about paying attention to plants that are crossing, especially like in my own garden, especially with the climate change and all of that fun stuff. I feel like I'm very non-scientific with the way that I save seeds, but essentially what I do as a gardener is I let everything do its own thing. I let plants flower and go to seed, with, which is often frowned upon by many other 
master gardeners and such. Um, so it's, it's not a, a conventional way of doing things. Um, as an indigenous person uh, living in an urban area, paying attention to plants and the way that they proliferate helps me feel grounded in my place. So for me, I get jazzed about saving seeds because I essentially feel like I am collecting and preserving like a lineage of growth with the plants that I'm interacting with and noticing like collard plants in our garden that survive the winter. And when they survive the winter, that means that they're going to seed. And as a grower, I'm able to take a guess that this is a strong plant that will survive. Um, and so I get to take those seeds and save them and share them with my neighbors and say like, hey, this is an amazing collar plant that will survive the winter. That's so exciting to me to think that we can like share that, that power and abundance like through this, ooh, the seed. Yep. We've got a whole pile of seed packets in front of us that we're looking forward to mm -hmm. sharing with you all. And I think I come to this from a similar place. You know, I grew up buying these paper seed packets at the store if I was going to do gardening and was so fascinated to learn that as plants adapt to the place they're in, they might be a little bit different than the seed that you get from a big corporation and so it's so exciting to grow something in your garden see it do well and and save the seed and share it so that's part of what we're we're looking forward to being able to do at our seed swap in a couple weeks or i guess i should say on february 11th um <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some seeds here in front of us as you've been hearing from the um, background sounds that we're going to end up offering at the seed swap and thought maybe Azrae you could describe um, some of what we're looking at like where these seeds came from a little bit about their story. The exciting thing about the seeds a lot of the seeds that I plan on bringing are staple food crops so like uh, flint corn and dry beans and brassicas so like collards and kale those things that are very um, easy to grow and also great storage food crops. Uh, so this corn that we have here, I did buy out of a seed catalog <laughs> once upon a time. Um, it's called, I don't know if I'm saying it right, so please forgive me folks, but Sesapsing Oklahoma Delaware Blue Flint Corn. It's also referred to as Lenape Blue Corn. Um, and we have Nixmetalize this to make tortillas and other like corn based foods. So it's a very exciting corn. And for some reason, it's, it's a beautiful black corn. Um, since you can't see it, this is radio. Um, and in growing other types of corn, we've had really a hard time keeping the pests away. Mm. And something about this corn. I don't know. It just grows and it doesn't get eaten by critters. So we just keep planting it because it's successful and it's very useful. We have tons of it in our freezer and I plan on sharing it with in the edible version at the swap. Uh, we also have some dry beans and once again, bought them out of maybe, you know what? I bought these from Honest Weight Food Co-op. Awesome. <laughs> 
but probably not last year, right? I no, mean, this no, is seasons no, ago, no, which is what's no. so exciting. I probably bought yeah. them like seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I get really excited about these beans is because they plant themselves in our garden every year. And so I have beans going off in my garden without planting them. So a lot of the plants that I do grow, like they're self-planting at this point. And um, my job as a person growing the plants is just to like decide whether or not they get to stay or go. I wonder, you know, the fact that we're doing this in people's health sanctuary, if you want to talk or dream about any of the connections between seed saving and mutual aid community health like anything spring to mind for you yeah i mean i just feel like the our our power to save these seeds and share them with our community as a food source is one very obvious thing and i i don't know i just see like seeds as a very uh, it's just so nice to like connect over the stories around seeds and the food that comes from them and the people who have allowed us to have this food. I think like using seeds as a point of connection and building relationship and trust. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I don't know, when I imagine People's Health Sanctuary, which we were just talking about, like what yeah. is People's <laughs> Health Sanctuary? I just, it's a, it's a vision of us all coming together and connecting and sharing over whatever medium it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I love seeds because they're plants and they're food. And it keeps me connected to the land, which is supporting all of us. Uh, and I think that's a very important thing that we all need to remember so that we can support each other and stay healthy together collectively. That's that's what comes up for me. Beautiful. Hopefully that makes sense. I, it, yeah, <laughs> it, it totally does. And I think part of what I love about this location for People's Health Sanctuary, in particular on the second floor of Nature Lab and on the Sanctuary campus more broadly, is that we have this land stewardship, plant-human relationship bubbling up in lots of places on the block. And so we get the opportunity to like really concretely connect. Like I almost think of like our these long relationships with plants that we can describe as domestication they're actually like plant human mutual aid and like us <laughs> figuring out ways to live together and benefit each other over long periods of time so like reframing that relationship as one of <laughs> care and mutual aid that is like also central to the relationships we build in people's health sanctuary to keep ourselves our communities healthy through communal practices yeah Thanks so much, Azrae, for um, sitting down and chatting with me about and over seeds. Um, folks can learn more about the seed swap happening on Saturday, February 11th from 11 to 1 at Nature Lab on the Sanctuary event page, mediasanctuary.org events. Okay, I'm hungry now after hearing about all those veggies. Thanks to Nature Lab community science educator Ellie Irons and Collard City growers Azrae for that report. Listeners, you can come to the seed swap on Saturday the 11th, even if you don't have seeds of your own to swap. You can also tour the very cool Nature Lab space. Sina? And now to end tonight's show, we are looking at next week's Valentine's Day, 
Partners in Love, Life, and Music, Taina Asili and Gaetano Vaccaro, celebrate Valentine's Day each year, with the exception of during the pandemic, with a performance at Umana Yana in Albany. And this is a special night of multilingual love songs and delicious international cuisine. And joining us now to talk more about this yearly event is Taina. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me, Sina. It's such an honor and a privilege to talk with you today. This has been ongoing every year. I mean, music is an obviously beautiful way to celebrate music. How many years have you been doing this and what keeps you returning to this venue? So I think I'm going to say that maybe this is in like the year seven. Um, I, I will say that I did do an online version for Umana during the pandemic as well, which was really right. fun. Um, but this has been, I think it's been two or three years uh, that I haven't been in person there. So um, I'm really excited to, to get in there again and sing for my community. Now, you and Gaetano are partners in love, life, and music. You have so many different creative aspects. I've seen some of your videos and interviews and all. Can you say a little bit about your process? And also, how do the two of you survive being together that much and working together? Well, I will answer the second question first, which is that I absolutely adore Gaetano. It is shocking, but we never get sick of each other. We parent two kids together. We work together all day long and we laugh about how much we just love each other's company. We're just those kind of people that love to be together. We have been playing music together since 2006. Um, and you know, we mostly play music that is our original music, you know, performing sort of like Afro-Latin fusion uh, with our band. But this is an opportunity for us to do something different. I don't normally perform at restaurants and I don't normally perform in quite that intimate setting. So this is something special I only offer for Yumana because it is such a beautiful special restaurant and community dale who owns the restaurant is such a loving and, and and inviting person and i wanted to support this restaurant but it's also my time to like sing to my beloved like to get to <laughs> sing these love songs not only to gaetano but i also often we'll find that like friends and family and community that I love so much that I never get to see walk into the restaurant and I sing love songs to them too because I'm just in love with my people. <laughs> and your part of your creative process is also continuing to get new influences. And I know the two of you spend some time in Spain learning about flamenco and uh, music that I think is like very passionate. So what, how has that experience influenced your work and your growth as musicians? Yeah. Um, so yeah, in 2010 and to end in 2011. So to, in 2010, as part of our, um, our uh, post wedding time, uh, we went to Spain and that was our first time period studying in flamenco. And Gaetano studied flamenco guitar, I studied flamenco voice. And though um, it's still a part of my heart and my life, it's not my profession, uh, but it still is it's very much a part of my heart. It's a part, it's something that we love to do. And for me, it's really important to have 
aspects of my creative process that are just for joy and not necessarily uh, for a professional performance or product, you know, but just something that I love to do. Um, and so I still love to sing flamenco. Um, you know, we are babies in that world, um, but we are happy babies and we love to sing it and, and, and perform it when we can. I've seen you perform a number of times and thank you for the free Zoom sessions during the start of the pandemic. They really helped my spirits survive. Thank you, uh, but let's go back to the restaurant's food. Can you tell us more about the kind of food they have there? Ooh, they have the most delicious international cuisine. So you know, you just said that you were like fed and nourished by these workshops. I too was fed and nourished by that. And I was fed and nourished by uh, Yumana during the pandemic. I was getting those deliveries and picking them up because they are, um, they just have a, an international cuisine style that's hard to find in the capital region. Um, that food is really unique. You know, one of the things that I love about traveling is that I get to taste food from various parts of the world that I might not be able to taste here in Albany. Um, but with Yumana, they bring that to you. So um, the Valentine's Day menu is like a delicious uh, specials menu every year, something completely different. Um, and yeah, they hook it up. Now, you mentioned international, and one of the things I love about your performances is how you not only acknowledge, but celebrate your Puerto Rican background. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I was uh, born into a Puerto Rican family, my mother and father, um, and they were both uh, musicians, artists, dancers. My, my father was a musician. My mom was an artist and a dancer. And they were keepers of our Puerto Rican traditions and um, really instilled in me this understanding of all that I am, all that I do is a part of a lineage, that I am not an anomaly, but part of part of an intention of resilience um, and a brilliance that that I have inherited and that like a river, I keep it flowing to the next generation. So I love to incorporate that in my original music that I create. And then I also bring that into my multilingual love song. So most of the songs that I'm going to perform at Umana are in Spanish. Um, but I also love to incorporate a little bit Gaetano's from Sicily. So we do a little Italian Sicilian, some songs in, Sp in English. And who knows? Who knows what we might pop in there next? So when you're thinking of the playlist for Valentine's Day, what is a romantic song? And is there like a common concept of romance? Um, I think some often our associations are in the moment where you were, what you're eating, you know, the moment. Do you feel like there's a broad definition of a romantic song? Ooh, I, you know, I find so many different types. I, I have such a wide musical range. I love romantic music. Uh, of all different types. Um, I, I, interestingly enough, I don't write much romantic music in my own original composition. So what I pull from today is um, I pull like a lot of like Nueva Cancion, which is like this uh, folklore music from uh, like the uh, Chile and, and Cuba. 
Um, I love to sing music from Mexico, obviously from Puerto Rico. I mentioned Sicily. And I just find songs that really just sit nicely in the voice that are juicy with the acoustic guitar and the and and the type of vocal style that fits well with my voice that I don't often get to feature as much when I'm performing with the big band. You mentioned your voice. In the last minute, is it possible to hear just a little bit of of song? Sure. Let me see. Sneak uh, preview. You, yeah, you put me on the spot, but I got I this, right? I'm a professional. Here we go. <laughs> just like my mom would. Ready? Okay. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto. Me dio dos luceros que cuando los abro, perfecto distingo lo negro de blanco y en el alto cielo su fondo estrellado y en las multitudes el hombre que yo amo. Thank you oh so much, Taina. You are so oh welcome. My. Thank you for inviting me to can, sing. I don't think I can go to your concert. I'm not currently in a relationship. And I think after hearing you sing, I will just fall in love with whoever is sitting at the next table. <laughs> That's the way to go. That's the way to go. And <laughs> love and yourself. All, and I also want to say for all of my heartbreak folks, I love to sing all different types of love songs. So I sing songs that are about uh, heartbreak, songs that are about friendship, songs that are love songs that are about family. You know, this it's a I really like to think very broadly and expansively about what it means to love. Well, thank you so much, Taina. The Yumana Yana restaurant is presenting Amor with Taina, Asili, and Gatano Vaccaro on Valentine's Day, February 14th. And the Umana, U-M-A-N-A, restaurant.com. Is that the best way to get more information? That's right. And I highly recommend, you know, checking out their website if you're interested in coming, making a reservation there. I'll be doing three sets, uh, six, seven, six, seven, and eight. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Bria Barthel, co-host and headlines editor for today's program. Thanks to volunteers Mark Dunley and Willie Terry, who also contributed to this episode. My regular co-host, Blaze Bryant, and retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson should be back for next week's show. We want to hear from you. You can find <laughs> us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you.